Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, March 18th, and that means we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's show, we're going to talk about Wells Fargo. Did their CEO really deserve a raise? Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to kick that idea around. We've got a, a good listener tweet to discuss, too. As always, Matt and I will have one to watch for you, but we begin today with a new installment of Between Two Fools. Rob Lacasio is the founder and CEO of LivePerson. As the leader in intelligent engagement solutions, LivePerson currently serves over 18,000 clients with 1,200 employees and offices across the globe. Recently, I had the good fortune to speak with Rob, and we talked about everything from the intended and the unintended effects technology is having on the world to life as a CEO of a publicly traded company and why he's excited about what the future holds for LivePerson. Okay, Rob, customer service is hard. You founded this business, Live Person, on that very concept back in 1995. What I'd like to know is, first of all, tell me how I, the consumer, might interact with Live Person on any given day. For, uh, let's say, a customer of T-Mobile, um, you can now, through iMessage, right on your mobile device, you can message, you'll see T-Mobile's there, and you can message them like you were messaging your friends and family. And even I, I just saw they, they just put in that when you go to their website on your mobile device on, on your I, iPhone, uh, you'll see a little say message us. You click on it, and it also opens that uh, on iMessage. So you no longer have to like make a phone call or uh, even find chat. Although I invented chat back in 1997, you don't have to find a chat button on a website right from your mobile device. You can message a brand, and you can do it on your own time. You know, you message. Maybe you're in a meeting. They get back to you. But it really puts the control of customer care in the hands of the consumer, which I think we've all been waiting for versus being put on hold. And what was the real – what was the, the idea there? I mean, how did you start this? What was the idea that really got this thing going? You know, it's, it's like every entrepreneur, usually there's an event that happened, and then you thought, why can't I change that? And <laughs> it, it happened that um, it was – you know, I was, I was shopping on the uh, website of Dell Computer, and I was looking for a computer, and I, like, configured it online. And then I needed to to basically ask a question, and I picked up the phone because they didn't have anything online. And at that time, I had to actually hang up my connection on, uh, to the website. And and then the person on the phone made me like do everything over again that I did that I spent an hour doing on the website. I thought that's weird. Why can't I just point at the if I'm living in the digital world and I'm doing commerce in the digital world? Why can't I converse in that digital world? And that made me invent the technology of web chat at the time. And uh, you know, basically built the company around it from from that point forward. Yes, I mean, I was checking out your investor relations site. I mean, I mean, I've been checking that out periodically here since we've been covering the company. But I mean, there, yeah. right there on the bottom right of the screen is that that little chat bot, that box that says, "Hey, you know, how can we help you or something?" I mean, that that is essentially what you guys are doing, right? Yeah, I mean, but we really, like I said, it, you know, I I came to the conclusion about five years ago that web chat was not going to do it because even at our largest customers, about 5 to 10% of their volume would go through there. And still 90% of the time, 95% of the time, the consumers had to go and make a phone call. Yeah. And so when I saw, you know, five years ago also that messaging, I was messaging my friends and family through Facebook Messenger and SMS and WhatsApp and all that, I thought, man, consumer B2B 
behavior has changed. Like we don't talk to people anymore. No. And so, well, why can't I do that with a brand? And that led me to this next innovation. You know, I often think I'm kind of blessed that I was able to create this thing called web chat and it, it did a lot of good in the world, I think, but we kind of have a second time around uh, developing and pioneering something that I think is going to have a greater impact on the world of customer care, definitely in customer care, but especially I think just broader uh, impact on what we call conversational commerce, the ability to have a conversation with a machine and, and, and get something done with a brand through a machine or with a machine. And that's the stuff we're going after. It's really big stuff. Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, you're giving brands an opportunity to really take their customer service to the next level. And you're right. I mean, it, it's totally changed from from when we were growing up. I mean, I, I would much rather interact via chat on my own time as opposed to having to sit there on hold. Now, when we talk about brands, I mean, our show on, on, on Industry Focus, we like to focus a lot on the financials industry um, and, and talking about Banking and payments and insurance companies in particular, uh, and so for us, I mean, when we look at how technology is changing that space, and it's changing the space in all sorts of different ways, but I think that that your technology is certainly helping them up their customer service game. Uh, can you talk about any of the things going on in the financial space in particular that have you excited about the future? Yeah, you know, we, we have some of the biggest uh, banks in the world, insurance companies. We have Citibank and HSBC and American Express and companies like this. Um, but th- and then, but I, I got a really good story of um, there's a bank called Buddy Bank, which is a division of Unicredit. Unicredit is one of the top, uh, you know, I think top 10 or 20 banks in the world. It's definitely in the Fortune 500. And it's it basically there's uh, they decide to launch a bank that was all about um, the connection with the consumer and this idea of a concierge service. So this buddy bank is basically like your buddy, and your buddy helps you, like, book reservations into hotels or restaurants, get you tickets, do things, and you also can bank. As in what they really figured out was that, okay, we do credit cards, we're doing loans, we're doing everything, we're a bank, but people are buying things. They're buying cars. They're buying... Why don't we try to help them buy a car? And then we're going to get the transaction of the loan to a car. Why don't we help them find a restaurant? Because they'll use our credit card. And so they proved out that conversational banking is really what I think is the real future. And that's about personalizing the experience with the consumer. And it changes the game, as in the banks aren't – now banks are just more or less places to do transactions. Yep. Okay, you got a low interest rate, I'll, do, I'll get my mortgage there. I'll get my credit card here because you're giving me some points. It's a commodity. And what banks are looking for is an ongoing relationship where every day you're going to want to do something with me. I have your student loans for your kids. I'll give you your car loan. Don't go any other place. But today it's very loose. We as consumers think, who cares about a bank? I'll go wherever the interest rate is or the points are. And he proved, the CEO over there, Angelo Alessandro, he's the CEO of Buddy Bank, he proved that this can be differently. A bank could be radically different than what we think a bank is. Well, I mean, I think you said the key word there in in personalized, and that really takes me to my next question because I mean, we live in this day and age where data is everywhere, and and I mean, you said it yourself: your data is your moat. And and I mean, obviously, 
I mean, today privacy means something completely different than what we knew growing up. I mean, privacy has become yeah. a very hot button issue these days. And, and I mean, to be clear, not only do you have these big customers, uh, you just listed off a few major ones there, American Express and Citibank, but but you're also partnering up with a lot of the big players in the tech space like Facebook, Google, Apple, and and we've seen how this privacy conversation has has taken place with all of these names and given. That your data is your moat, and you're working with these companies, and sort of this the age we're living in now, with privacy being so such a hot button issue. I mean, what are some of the challenges and and the opportunities in making sure that that data stays protected, not only for the consumer but for you as well? The thing that I think makes us very different than most technology companies in the world is we really uh, are representing the brands. So uh, the brands are our customers, and then we're we're like we're B two B to C, so the brands are on our platform, and their consumers come through our platform to reach them. And we always have to adhere to what the highest level of security and personal data is, and managing all that from the brand's perspective. And believe it or not, the brands have a very high you know high bar because if I'm a bank, um, I I'm working at some of the highest levels when it comes to privacy, when it comes to security, because I know if that gets broken, you as a consumer may leave me. Yeah. And so we always take it from their perspective. We, we actually run our own clouds. We run six clouds around the world. We can't be on Amazon Web Services because they're not even secure enough for the conversational data we have. Oh, no kidding. So, no. So we, we, since the beginning, we've always run our own clouds because banks won't bank with us. They won't be on our platform. So, so these are things that we look at, and we look at the once again the consumer. If someone is coming in and having a conversation, and we have to secure that. If a consumer puts in, for instance, personal information into the messenger, we actually we, we, we what we do is we mask it, and then we encrypt it, and then we, we 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 transfer it. And we've done that from the beginning. So we have a very very high bar because the consumers are not products to us. Well, I mean like that's to to the Facebooks and stuff. A consumer is a product to us. They're not products. They're part of the conversational, uh, you know, the part of being generating the conversation. We got to protect them and that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that puts uh, the consumer at ease there, knowing that. I mean, that, yeah. that's I, I didn't realize you guys ran your own cloud infrastructure. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah we've done that since the beginning. Yeah. That's 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 actually, man, I tell you, I didn't realize that. That is, I mean, I would think that you know, you talk about your data being your moat, and that really is the ultimate way to protect your moat. Even if you have to pay a little bit more for that, that really does give you that added uh, sense of security, doesn't it? Yeah, because you know we we are the more, we are a premium platform, so we we get a lot of money to work with our customers, and we provide a lot of value. But that value and that value chain comes from everywhere from the, it's from the network operations all the way up to we're always innovating. We're the first to do things in the world. I don't copy other people and try to make things cheaper or faster. I try to you know run. I've always run a company where we're inventing new things and working with the customers, and more importantly. Um, and I've seen this, especially in the last two years since we launched the messaging platform. Like, I'm so proud that our customers are what I call firsts. They're, they're all very proud to be first at doing something. T-Mobile was the first brand in the world to go scale with messaging. You know, Citibank was the first bank to do messaging through Google and what they call RCS on Android devices. Um, Vodafone Germany was the first company to, do real, to, to go scale at WhatsApp through the contact center from voice calls to WhatsApp. And there's so many firsts. We've got a guy out there 
who works for Aramark, and we're, we're, we're doing the first in-stadium ordering of food and beverages from your seat with messaging and bots. Like, so in order to do first, we always have to be running at such a level of expertise and quality because we're trying to get people to do things in their own organizations that are going to put that, them, them on the line. They're innovators, and we can't fail them. Yeah, that's 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 a really, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, given the nature of your business, I mean, essentially the nature of your business is understanding customer service, being able to put that customer first. You understand how hard it is. You understand how to do it well. And when you do it well, that's got to really, the customers that you're bringing in, then they recognize that and they want to stay with you. And I would think that just creates this this almost virtuous cycle that just continues to grow. And, and you, I think, establish that moat over time uh, to, to where not only your data is your moat, but really the service that you're providing your customers is too. Yes. Yeah. So, and that's why... Um, once again, we, we, I think we take an extra special uh, view of the consumers, our customers, their data, the quality of our service. Um, and, you know, cutting edge, like every time we're out there making something new, I often say, you know, you, you can get pretty beat up because you're, you're putting out new technology. But we're constantly, even if we're doing cutting edge stuff and new stuff that's never been done before, you know, we got to keep improving it every day, and we work very hard at that. That's why we have the biggest brands in the world. That's why they trust us to pro- provide a, a customer-consumer experience. Like, we're, we're enabling their consumers to connect with them. In some cases now, we have 30 to 40% of their consumer interactions are going through our platform over voice. And that's, that's a lot, and they're like, you, you cannot fail. You have to be able to provide a high-quality <laughs> yeah. high service in this, in this world that you guys have created. So, as a CEO, as a leader of this company, how do you combat that short-termism on a on a quarterly basis? Because you got to get out there, you got to release that earnings, and then you got to go do the call. And, and I mean, I've, I've I've read the earnings, I've I've listened to the calls, and you, you do you're able to paint that picture of a longer-term road to success. I mean, what are some of the things you do to combat that short-termism? I mean, you know, I'm founder CEO companies, um, as you as you know usually are the best performing companies because it starts with, I'm still the largest shareholder in this company. And so, and that's been that way since I founded it. And so I have a lot to gain and a lot to lose. And so um, I'm aligned with our shareholders. Now the difference is that, you know, you, I can't, I don't go, I can't go in and out of my stock every week. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, I don't trade my stock like that. And, and if you're a fund manager, you can trade in and out of our stock and you have the right to do that. And that's, that's, that's a different business model. So I think by nature, I'm always thinking about what can I do to maximize the value of that? And sometimes it is by the quarter. I will live by the quarter. Like right now we're, we're living by quarters because we are in pure execution mode. I'm not living by it because I think I'm trying to live by the, what you're talking about, the quarterly thing, because I think we need to deliver very quickly now results because that'll make us win the game. Now, if you dial back five years ago, you'll see me I cut earnings in half. Yep. Uh, I went through a very, you know, we went through a very painful public experience of like people not believing in us, analyst stuff, uh, you know, we had shareholders come in. Uh, but I found, I just was straightforward, you know, just was just straightforward. Here's the vision. That's what we're going to try to do. Um, sometimes I could not paint the vision because for competitive reasons, I don't want to give out everything five years ago. Sure. So I think you kind of go through this concept of at the end, 
And that's how I always think about it. At the end, whatever that end is, I believe that this company will be worth, uh, you know, billions and billions of value to the shareholders, including myself, like multi-billions. I think this company could be one of the biggest companies in the world. That's how I've always tried to run. Now, we're not right now. I get it. But if you work with that viewpoint, you're constantly trying to change, improve yourself, improve the company, and, and then work towards that longer thing. Today, we look great. We're, we're at an all-time high, and I know that. And I know that that could be very short-lived, but our vision is not short-lived. Like, and I, and we, we've always been committed to it uh, as a company. For right or wrong or short-term or long-term, we've been committed to a vision that we will digitize communication between brands and consumers. We will make that easier. Uh, we will make give consumers their time back, and we're going to change the way in which that experience happens, and we're going to be the leader in that, and that just hasn't changed. So we're committed to that. You know, as long as I'm here, we're committed to that vision. Yeah, and that's a really good point. We we always love to see um, founders with skin in the game. I mean, we we just like you said. I mean, you're acting really. You you're aligned with shareholders because you essentially are the same as them, and 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 you can't get in there and trade in and out of that stock on a quarterly basis. So you you have to take that long term view, and and that's that's good because clearly you go five five years ago. Yeah, you you guys were in a little bit of a a little bit of a bind there, but if you yeah. look over the course of that five years, hey, you know what? You're outperforming the market, and it looks like things are only getting better. So I mean, you're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I'd like to think, you know, I, I, we all have purposes in life, and um, I know there's, there's also just short-term, look, the world is, we're very much living in a world of short-termism, Yeah. Uh, as in everything looks like in five years you're a billionaire. Everything's about billionaires and tech billionaires and five years, and you're, you're going to be the next Facebook, and why aren't you the next Facebook, and why aren't you, I, I, and it, trust me, you know, even for myself, I've heard a lot of that over years, like, why did it take your 20 years doing this? Why aren't you bigger? You know, why, why isn't this company the size of Salesforce? It's, in my world, it's always Salesforce. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not Salesforce, and I don't want to be Salesforce. And I admire Mark, and he's done a great job with Salesforce, but that's not our destiny. Now, at the end of this whole thing, if we get to where I think we get, I think everyone will be very happy, and I think everyone will be very proud, and I'll be able to show the world that if you put in the time and you're committed – and you're persevering, that ultimately you will reach your goal, and you will get to where. And financial rewards just follow always. Market caps follow with good. We, if we do good for our customers, our market cap will follow. And so that's my thing. We just on a different journey. Our journey was never about five years. If you looked at us from the beginning, you guys have been following us actually from the beginning. Beginning uh, when we went public, after we had to restructure the company during the dot com downturn, all of that. Uh, we've been through a lot to get here, but that makes us prepared for the big things. And we're here today, I think, looking at the big thing. We're staring at the big thing, and that's conversational commerce. That's great perspective there. Now, let's pivot a little bit. I want to talk about something I know you're really proud of, and I can understand why. Um, and our listeners, I know, will love to hear about this. You're involved with an initiative called the Equal AI Initiative. Is that right? Yeah, so Equal AI. Yep, we're tell, us, tell us a little bit about that. So, Equal AI is you know, I, obviously, we're, we're using a lot of AI technologies. Uh, I can actually, uh, I think we've done a really good job at getting uh, people in organizations who normally wouldn't be exposed to this. In our case, we work with contact center reps, and they're the ones creating bots. They're the ones using AI, which is really unique. You would think only like, uh, you know, uh, basically data scientists and engineers can use AI, but we built our technology so the, the people in the contact center can use this technology to better their, their work. Um, so I started to see that there's a lot of 
challenges with AI in the world, it, and it's, it's in many different places, um, everything from, uh, you know, Amazon Alexa, we talk about uh, gender. It's a woman. Uh, it's a woman's voice. And yeah. why was that created? And now we know there's problems with children watching their parents give commands to this woman <laughs> in a yeah. machine. Uh, you know, there's, and we know the bias with data sets. There's all this bias with data sets, and we're reading about this every day. Well, I kind of was like, instead of just watching this from the sidelines, I said, let's create an organization. Let's bring people together. Uh, we've got Jimmy Wales, Wikipedia, and, and uh, Ariana Huffington. And then I brought on Marion Bogle, who's um, worked for uh, President Obama, and she ran the bias uh, training programs for the federal law enforcement uh, groups, uh, DEA, FBI. She created all the curriculum for that. And I said, you know, let's get ahead of this. Let's start to create some frameworks, and let's invite people in. Let's invite companies in. Let's invite other leaders in. Let's invite a diverse group of people to help shape um, how this could be because it's, it gets a little tiring hearing Elon Musk talk about how <laughs> AI is basically the existential threat to humanity. Yeah. Like, I get it, but there's also a lot of things that could happen as long as we're more transparent about it and we don't leave it in the hands of just technologists behind the technology door. And that, that's our goal with uh, Equal AI. That's great stuff. All right, listen, I want to be respectful of your time here. I know you're a busy guy, um, but I'm going to wrap this up. And the way we like to wrap up our interviews is we're big readers. We love to read. Our listeners love to read. We're always looking for a good book to read. And so I'm going to ask you, Rob, do you have anything good you've read lately, a book recommendation that we might want to go pick up? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a couple right now, but I'm reading the book Zuck which is the uh, yeah. uh, Roger McNamee book you probably know about, the ones, uh, you know, Zuck waking up to Facebook's catastrophe. Yep. Um, and I think it's important for, especially being a technology leader, um, you know, to read a book like this because I fundamentally believe like he does, and I, I, don't, I, don't, need to, I don't want to make a comment on, on Facebook or, or sure, Mark Zuckerberg. Sure. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg on that level, and I think he's built an amazing mm-hmm. company. But there's something fundamentally wrong with uh, the, the technology leadership today, the, that leadership, the Googles and the Facebooks and Amazons and even Apple in certain ways, in that I grew up with an era, I'm 50, and I grew up in an era where it was Bill Gates and um, Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs and Scott McNeely and these guys, uh, Andy Grove, they were my heroes, and they were ruthless competitors, and, and uh, but... They were always working towards building these great companies, but wasn't at the expense um, of, 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 I would say, society in many ways. What they may have, they, they, they competed with each other. They were ruthless in many ways. Obviously, Microsoft, in some, some ways, the government stepped in on them. But you always felt they were trying to make, give the world things that would make our lives better. And they, I don't feel like they ever looked at the cons, as, as consumers or just the general population as product. And they should be managed like product. And they should be marketed like product. And I think somewhere, I don't know how we got here, but it's become a place where we, there needs to be a new voice. And, and, we, need, and we cannot keep going with the winner-take-all mentality. And I get it, like that's capitalism, and I'm a capitalist, and I'm a I'm a competitor. Trust me, <laughs> but but I do not believe the current frameworks are going to work. And I'll tell you a couple examples. We have customers who will never be on Amazon Alexa, 
they'll never ever be on there oh, yeah. of our, our brands because they will not give their business and the insight to Jeff Bezos. And that's going to prevent them from being in homes potentially. There are people who won't advertise on, on Facebook because they know their data is going to be uh, viewed. Um, there are things going on that it's just not good for our uh, overall business. And my greatest concern is that the tech CEOs, and I'm one of these, is we're going to start being like the, looked up in a very negative way. And, and that's not what we're all about. It's not what I'm about. And I think we need to, it's a good book to look at how did it happen? How did we get, how did Facebook get there? Um, and I just wish that the leadership, the one that's known, would just kind of mea culpa and be like, look, it's time for change versus everybody about stuff and then hoping that it'll go away or hiring people to lobby in Washington to make it go away when ultimately I think is, as a citizen, I feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with these businesses and uh, it's got to stop. So that's the book I'm reading now. And well, I think a lot of people job. would agree with Robert that. He's a great, he's got a good insight about this stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with the sentiments that you just laid out for us there. Uh, hey, listen, Rob, this has been a real pleasure. I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak with us. I know you're a busy man. Uh, what you've done with Live Person to date is just phenomenal, and and I could just tell from from talking with you the passion that you have for this business. Thanks so much for taking the time, Rob. I hope to Thank talk you. to you again soon. Okay, have a good one. Thanks, Jason. Before we continue, we want to say thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Making that perfect hire can set your team up for success in the new year, but where do you find that person? That's why when it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day. Talking about LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. And it's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. And joining me in the studio via Skype now, as always, is certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, just great. It's a beautiful day down here. It hasn't rained in four days, which I think is the longest stretch we've had all winter. So it's it's a good good times in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, man, I tell you, we've got a little bit of a, of uh, some overcast weather up here, but it seems like spring is just around the corner. So, uh, yeah, maybe just a few more days of this uh, winter stuff to deal with. Uh, man, I tell you, I was I was watching the uh, the players. Uh, on on you know the golf championship and um it just started got me got me thinking about augusta man already thinking about augusta georgia the masters just a, just a lovely time of year not not too far away uh okay listen let's steer away from golf here for a minute let's talk about uh banks because this is industry focus financials uh matt has set this up in the in the beginning of the show here we we were reading through uh, an article last week about Wells Fargo's CEO, Tim Sloan. And it looks like Mr. Sloan got a little bit of a raise for 2018. And I guess the question that's on everybody's mind right now is, did he really deserve it? Well, 
I'm going to argue for and against this. And so before you, I start getting you know hateful tweets, <laughs> just bear with me for a second. Um, well, first of all, just to put everything in context, his, his total compensation went up to $18.4 million, which is a million more than last year. Now, whether you think $18.4 million is too much for any one person to be making, that's another issue. But the raise is the issue, and his base compensation really didn't go up. His base salary of $2.4 million is the same as it was last year. But And his stock-based compensation actually went down, which makes sense because, well, Stafargo's stock's done so terribly. <laughs> um, where he got more money was that the board decided to give him a $2 million bonus, which he didn't get at all last year. So that's the issue here. Now, first to put it in context here, I'll, I'll argue for it first. The, the, to put it in context, Sloan is still actually one of the lower paid bank CEOs, even with this raise. Uh, Jamie Dimon made $31 million last year. Brian Moynihan made $27 million last year. But to be fair, those guys weren't running banks that had you know 10 different scandals and all kinds of stuff like that going on. Um, now, we don't know what the bonus itself was actually for. This is kind of the argument where I want to know a little bit more before I rush to judgment. Now, if let's say when he took the job as CEO, he agreed to a certain amount of travel days, a certain amount of times testifying in front of Congress, things like that, and he wound up having to do more, maybe the board decided to compensate him for that extra work. I know at The Motley Fool, sometimes I get assigned a project that turns out taking twice as long as my boss intended it to, and they wind up you know, giving me a little bonus for it. So sure, maybe it was something like that. I want to know a little more. Makes sense. So, and it's really tough to make the case that Sloan has not put fixing the problems at Wells Fargo as his number one priority. If you read either of the last two annual reports, they issued a separate report earlier this year about all the way they've changed the culture and the, some internal changes they've made. So those are kind of the arguments for that why he might deserve a bonus. Now, having said <laughs> that, again, don't don't get on your Twitter just yet. <laughs> <laughs> now, the arguments against it are, one, the bank still hasn't made enough improvements to satisfy the Federal Reserve, whatever the Fed's looking for. Remember, there's that big penalty that's still in place that Wells Fargo is not allowed to grow. So this guy's running a bank that isn't growing. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and, right. And number two, it's not like Tim Sloan was brought in from the outside to fix the problems. He was already there. Tim Sloan was the president and COO of Wells Fargo while all these scandals were going on. So in a way, it's like he's cleaning up his own mess. Yep. Um, this is why politicians like Elizabeth Warren think he should be fired. Well, but I think you make a good point there because I, I was going to maybe cut him a little slack and saying, you know what, maybe this wasn't really – you know, maybe he's kind of coming in here and helping clean up a culture that obviously was was out of whack. But but I mean, the fact remains, you're you're right. He he wasn't hired from the outside. This is really partly a mess of his own making. Whether he was a CEO or CFO or COO, it doesn't matter. When you're in that executive suite, I mean, even even if it's, I mean, just perception is everything. And and there's no question that he had a, a part to play in what really broke this bank to begin with, right? Right. And that's why, you know, Elizabeth Warren and a lot of other politicians think he should be fired, not getting raises. Yeah. Because right. he was it's his mess. He should be they in a lot of people's minds, he should be lucky to have a job at all after all after all the, you know, thousands of consumers who were taken advantage of, admittedly, by the bank. 
So there's some gray area here. Like I said, he's still on the low end of the pay scale for bank CEOs. He has done a good job, in my mind, of trying to rehabilitate the bank's image and making some cultural changes and things like that. But on the other hand, has it been enough? Maybe not. And this is his mess to begin with. So, like I said, I'm torn. Yeah, it takes a little while, too. I think it's it's it, always worth mentioning. I mean, it's not like you just turn this ship around overnight. I mean, that that is a big company. And they're clearly there were there were several points of failure, and and so to to clean that mess up is going to take a while. Um, I mean, you know, I I feel like they probably would have been better served to bring in someone from the outside because I think that's an easier message to communicate. But they chose to go another way with that. Fine, whatever. When you do that, you have to recognize this is going to be a problem that you're going to deal with, and. Um, you know, again, perception often times is is reality, and and when you have that headline saying that the CEO of this bank who's just been screwing everybody left and right just got a raise, <laughs> I mean, people are going to be mad. I get it. Um, so yeah, make sure to tweet at TMF Math Guy for all of your controversial. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Don't give Matt a hard time. I think you played that one very well, Matt. You look at it. You fair look at both sides of the coin there. Um, and let's jump into Twitter here real quick because we got a good question over on the industry focus uh, Twitter feed. I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, uh, but it was from Jerry at GSLO Shake. But Jerry asks, can you explain why conglomeration is viewed as positive for companies like Berkshire Hathaway, Markel, and Boston Omaha, but not General Electric? Is it all about the insurance angle, or is it more about a track record of smart acquisitions? Thanks for the great podcast. Jerry, thank you for the kind words. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the question. Uh, Matt and I agreed this was one we wanted to get on the show here today because it, it's just it's fun one to sit there and talk about a little bit. Matt, what's your first take here? Well, there's actually a couple of different questions contained in that tweet. So let me tackle them one at a time. <laughs> First of all, it's not that conglomeration is a bad thing in GE's case specifically, or that because it's a non-insurance company. The problem with GE is leverage. Right now, I think, um, or actually as of the last quarter, about 75% of GE's capital structure is debt. That's not sustainable. And it's how they conglomerated. Um, they in the early 2000s, their GE Capital, the finance arm, started to get a little bigger and then started to take on products that it was never really intended to do. It was really just meant to supplement GE's other businesses, you know, providing financing for things they already make. Right. But they got into, you know, subprime mortgages and things like that. That any company that got into subprime mortgages in the 2000s was not doing well. So it's not that they didn't work. I would point to a company like 3M as an example of a non insurance conglomerate that really works. Um, 3M has healthcare operations, uh, chemicals, you know, consumer goods, you name it. Yeah. So it's it's a question of leverage. So that's point number one. Point number two is the insurance angle. It's not necessary, but it definitely helps in terms of the leverage financing angle because insurance companies are a provider of very low cost or no cost actually capital. Um, Warren Buffett calls it the mentions the float from time to time, meaning yeah. that all the money that is brought in from his insurance businesses before it's paid out, in the meantime, can be inv invested for the company's benefit. They don't have to pay interest on this money or anything. It's just imagine if someone gave you a hundred billion dollars that wasn't yours, 
but you got to keep every cent that was made by investing that money. That's a lot of capital that's essentially free. So that's why the insurance business is really the fuel that helps some of these conglomerates that that you mentioned. Yeah, and I think uh, one point also to remember with insurance companies is because they are beholden to certain guidelines and rules and regulations in regard to how some of that money is invested. I mean, some of that money has to be placed in low or virtually no risk uh, bond or f- other fixed instrument, uh, fixed income instruments. Um, now, not all of it. I'm not saying all of it, but but they do have to. They do have to mine that. So there is there is a little bit of a risk tolerance there, I guess you could say, and that you know that they're not going to completely go off the deep end and just make all of these bad investments with all of that float. There is some protection there, I guess, uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you, that's that's a very important point. You have to be good at running an insurance business for this model to work, <laughs> yeah. which which obviously Warren Buffett and his team are. Um, Martel's another one that's really good at running insurance businesses. Boston Omaha is up and coming. It remains to be seen, really. I'm hoping that they eventually. I mean, not just because I'm a shareholder. I hope that they grow into a you know an insurance operation like Markell or even Berkshire. But the, you have to be good at running an insurance business first. If you're if you're not running an underwriting profit, then you know all the float in the world isn't really going to help you that much over the long run. Yeah, that's a good point. And and I mean, it's worth noting. I mean, Boston Omaha and Markell are businesses that. You know they're running their businesses in that Berkshire mold. I mean, they look to Berkshire Hathaway as as sort of the north star. They're they're thinking, hey, this is these these guys did something and they did it really well. We we kind of like to do the same thing there. And so they're running their businesses with the similar philosophies in mind. So um, certainly, you know, Jerry picked out a couple of of, of good examples there in Berkshire, Mark Helen, and Boston Omaha. And looking on the flip side with GE, clearly, you know, GE was mismanaged from a number of perspectives. Uh, but all great insight as usual, Matt. Appreciate that and appreciate the question, Jerry. Uh, all right, it's that time of week. I'm going to wrap things up here, Matt. But before we do, we want to give our listeners one to watch. What is your one to watch this week? Like Fidelity National Information Services, uh, ticker symbol FIS. Um, I like they just announced they're acquiring WorldPay, which gives them an instant number one market share with with payment processing. Which I mean, if you could buy an instant number one market share in that the up and coming payment processing business that we've been that we're always raving about, that's a pretty good move in my book. Yeah. Um, if you're not familiar, WorldPay is the number one market share in merchant payments, primarily focused on e-commerce. Um, they process about 40 billion transactions per year, not dollar amount, 40 billion individual transactions. Wow. So this is a big, big merger. Um, they're, they're getting $35 million for, or I'm sorry, $35 billion for the company. It's a cash and stock deal. And as would be expected, Fidelity, Fidelity National stock actually dropped a little bit after the merger announcement, which is what normally happens. Usually the acquirer drops a little bit because they're paying a big premium. They're taking on some debt. Some uncertainty in um, execution risk and actually achieving the cost savings that they're claiming, but they already have a big market share in helping banks process credit card transactions and help service auto loans for banks. So this also gives them the number one market share in payment processing worldwide, which, in my mind, is a really nice business combination going into this cashless society over the next decade or two. 
All right. Um, I'm going to go, actually, with another company that we cover a lot here, a couple of companies, really, that, that have been made a little bit of news here. Um, you know, I called out Mercado Libre a couple of weeks ago, and this week, I'm going to go with PayPal, because if anybody out there was following the news, they would have seen that Mercado Libre recently uh, raised close to $2 billion in equity offerings here. Um, which on its own is impressive. I mean, I think that was a good move. They took advantage of the share price, uh, you know, being being nice and high at this point in time. Um, but the neat thing was that PayPal invested seven hundred and fifty million dollars in Mercado Libre, and that to me is telling from a number of angles. Uh, but but you know first and foremost when we talk about Mercado Libre as more than just an e-commerce company it is certainly a payments company as well and we saw this most recent quarter their their platform Mercado Paygo is processing uh, a lot of dollars through that network granted when you compare it to something like PayPal it's kind of a drop in the bucket but you got to start somewhere <laughs> and and it's nice to see that PayPal and Mercado Libre are are partnering up there and it's always interesting to me to think about how so long ago, there was this connection between Mercado Libre and eBay, and we know that PayPal came from eBay, and now there is no connection between eBay and Mercado Libre, but there is now a connection between PayPal and Mercado Libre. So, all to say, you probably want to invest in PayPal and Mercado Libre and just leave eBay alone. Um, but anyway, I think it's just a neat angle there with PayPal. Uh, good to see that they are investing in that global payments network, and good to see Mercado Libre taking advantage of it. Uh, so, I think with that, we will call this a show. Matt, as always, I appreciate you taking the time to jump in with us this week. Of course, it's always great to be here. All righty, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan for Matt Frankel and Ron Blacasio. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.